And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book, where we have a special from World of Possibilities. Stay tuned. Time to party. Break out the barbecue and crack a brew. But wait. Hold the sauce. Where did that meat come from? And what had to happen to bring it to you? Not exactly the question you like to hear when your stomach's growling and your mouth is watering. But more and more people are asking it as they hear about incidents of contamination and compromised food safety, the breeding of drug-resistant superbugs, and the inhumane conditions endured by animals raised in extreme confinement. This is pork production. What part do we consumers play in driving the priorities of an industrial meat production system that puts cheap meat on our plates, but at rising costs to human health, animal welfare, and environmental integrity? In order to place pigs and poultry in such close quarters, farmers have turned to feeding antibiotics to their animals, not just to treat infections, but to prevent outbreaks that might otherwise occur. But that dependence is producing a chain of unintended negative effects. Biologists say it's breeding drug-resistant strains of bacteria that are undermining the effectiveness of the antibiotics we depend on to fight our own infections. And that's just the beginning. Today on A World of Possibilities, bad medicine, overusing antibiotics in meat production. I'm Mark Summer. Welcome to A World of Possibilities. Our story begins in the windswept hills of California's north coast, in the West Marin County community of Bolinas. We've come here to track down the source of a meat revolution that began some three decades ago. That transformation is just now starting to infiltrate the industrial model of meat production that took hold of American agriculture over the past generation. We graze the, the, both the cattle and the goats, one after the other, first the cattle and then the goats, because they eat very different things. And so it actually... You can actually have a lot more total vegetation that grows back in a pasture that has been grazed by both cattle and goats. So it's a great way of producing more food from your ranch and actually increasing the vegetation on the meadows. Meet Bill and Nicolette Nyman. Together, they run a top-tier, antibiotic-free meat company called BN Ranch. Yeah, right. yeah most people think it's Bill Nyman, but it's actually <laughs> Bill and Nicolette for our partnership. And uh, Nicolette Han Nyman previously worked as an environmental attorney, tracking the effects of agricultural pollution on neighboring rivers and land. The culprits, she found, were CAFOs, confined animal feedlot operations. A cluster of metal buildings, um, as as they all do, windowless metal buildings. They look from the outside like some sort of concentration camp barracks. Inside CAFOs, thousands of animals are placed in slatted floor hard surface pens over liquid manure lagoons. Gestating sows are confined in individual cages so small that in the course of their several month pregnancies, they can't even turn around. Nicolette describes these conditions in graphic detail in her 2009 book, 
righteous pork chop. Well, the the whole thing about it is, is that raising animals this way almost sort of requires the antibiotics because the animals are so crowded. The air that they're breathing is so filthy. They're, they're not only standing and lying in their own feces all day, but they're actually standing above pits of their own liquefied manure. So when you walk into these facilities, and I remember very distinctly having this experience on every visit to one of these hog operations, you're almost hit with a kind of a wall of stench, kind of a rotting egg odor. And that's, that's from the manure and the rotting, uh, the feces that are, that they're, that they're kind of continually living in. And so there's an extremely high rate of respiratory illness among the pigs, among other things. Um, so it's almost as though the conditions are so, um, unsanitary that the drugs, um, make it possible to continue that kind of farming. Such is the state of the American meat production system today. But back in the 70s, Bill Nyman took a different path. He teamed up with journalist Orville Schell to launch Nyman Ranch, raising beef and lamb in the traditional way without antibiotics or hormones. In the 90s, he linked up with Paul Willis, an Iowa-based producer of natural pork. Together, they built a network of some 500 small, diversified farms that supply pork to what's now the most widely distributed premium national brand. Now Bill and Nicolette have launched a new venture with still more rigorous standards. Their offerings include gourmet meat goats and heritage turkeys. When I started, Mark, I was, uh, I guess this was fortunate for us that we were in the right place at the right time. So we had neighbors uh, that surrounded us that were uh, following traditional methods and we really were mentored by them. And, you know, basically we observed animals and applied a common sense approach to uh, meeting their needs and our underlying feeling and philosophy that drove all our decisions. If the animals are thriving, then what we're doing is correct. And if they're thriving, ultimately their meat uh, is going to be as, as good as it can be, both wholesome and tasty. Uh, why did you uh, not use antibiotics in the feed? After all, most of uh, meat that's raised nowadays in large concentrated feedlots uses antibiotics. Well, again, uh, I think we were blessed by our neighbors' uh, failure to embrace that technology, if you will. And we, of course, felt that uh, using antibiotics, at least to promote growth, uh, was basically... a replacing good animal husbandry. So if you're providing an environment where animals can thrive, there really isn't need for using antibiotics. Do you sometimes need to use antibiotics when the animals actually get infections? Yes, we do, and we uh, are totally supportive of that. And uh, there's no doubt that these drugs do work miracles when animals are needing therapy. But in, uh, in terms of uh, using them prophylactically or using them to promote growth or, again, to help animals thrive when they're overcrowded or in an unhealthy situation. No, we don't. We don't create those situations, nor do we feel that they should be created. So, again, it's about providing an environment where the animals can thrive. Uh, it's not, un it's, it's unusual, but it does happen where animals will get pneumonia when weather is extreme, when it's very warm one day and cold the next, and 
uh, causes respiratory problems, and in those situations, antibiotics uh, really help the animals, and we are supportive and encouraged the use for that reason and that reason alone. What do you do with the animals to sort of build their immune systems so they're not so um, uh, prone to infections, bacterial infections? Well, again, it uh, just goes back to if you observe the animal's behavior and you have a, a common sense understanding of their basic needs and provide that so they can thrive. And remember, these animals are all in their prime of life, and it's uh, uh, un- unusual for them to uh, uh, have bacterial infections or uh, pneumonia. It's very unusual. Uh, the animals, when they're young, are being challenged, but they are being nursed and cared for, nurtured by their mothers, and have that immunity. So it's just really, again, comes back to if you provide an environment where the animals can do what they are, uh, what they, what, how, what they've evolved to do, if they give an opportunity to uh, really real, realize all their instinctive needs, they're going to thrive, and you're, uh, uh, they're rarely going to be sick. In fact, uh, as we track the thousands of animals that we've raised for food, uh, it's, it's a, maybe one quarter of one percent that requires medication. You started this in, in a, a most unusual place. You weren't in the Midwest. You weren't in a meat-growing region. You weren't even in a meat-growing region part of, the, say, the Central Valley or something. You're in, in a remote corner of uh, the coast. When you started it, did you imagine that you would actually be spearheading a major uh, meat revolution? Uh, clearly, no. <laughs> <laughs> Even with your big visionary <laughs> yes, ideas? Right. It, uh, it really took on a life of its own. And of course, again, I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I think it's the epicenter of, of what's happening in food today. So, you know, 30 years ago, I was dealing with, well, these divas of modern cuisine were all in residence and, uh, uh, they really uh, helped me get a complete understanding of the way the stuff is supposed to taste. And everything we did in uh, raising our animals was focused on delivering the best eating meat in the world. And, and, and we were, had a clear understanding that if you provided the animals an environment where they can thrive and realize all their genetic potential, they will do so without drugs. Well, it's interesting that it's obviously not the majority of consumers yet. And after all, uh, you know, Nyman Ranch and similar premium brands constitute perhaps 1% of the market. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Not a large percentage. Mm -hmm. But the tail is wagging the dog at this point in some ways, it seems like. I mean, they are actually leading a a much broader change. Bill, what do you think? Again, you didn't visualize it then, but in more recent years, surely you've seen that you're part of something very large that's happening. Uh, Yes, indeed. In fact... You know, when I started talking publicly about the use of antibiotics and hormones, primarily in feeding beef, and then, of course, we, as we grew our enterprise, we started with pork, and the conversation intensified, and the industry laughed at, at what I was saying. And, of course, now they're all at least talking the talk, although at any, uh, I have to say that uh, the trade organizations and the Farm Bureau have really not made the switch yet. They're still, you know, hanging on and fighting for the use of antibiotics. And they really, of course, are only speaking for a small portion of their own constituency. And those, of course, are the big guys. 
and their funding is is uh, directly attributable to the bigger guys rather than the small guys. So they that's their party line, and that's unfortunate. But again, the consumer awareness and the public conversation about antibiotics, justifiably so, is now heightened to the point where they cannot the industry cannot ignore it. And uh, of course, there's a whole other class of antimicrobials and probiotics that are evolving to uh because they may not look like antibiotics even though they act like antibiotics and it's a very confusing situation so uh again i think uh, a good case can be made for the introduction of naturally occurring uh beneficial bacteria into the digestive tracts of animals probiotics for example but again it's a uh, it's the industry promoting uh a business in the same way that the pharmaceutical companies promoted the use of antibiotics without having any understanding of the downstream consequences. And here we are today uh, suffering, uh, well, for example, salmonella, which was a case of diarrhea not too many years ago, now is a, is a, can be a fatal disease. And uh, not to mention this, the, the MRSA infection as that's that's uh, around the world and as uh, any reasonable person can attribute this to antibiotic resistant staph organisms that uh, really uh, if not directly certainly indirectly are derived from feeding and the, the misuse of antibiotics in the food system as well as in, in human uh, medicine pioneering natural meat producers bill and nicolette nyman years, molecular biologists have noted with alarm the rapid evolution of so-called superbugs, capable of resisting any antibiotics we throw at them. Stuart Levy is a professor at Tufts University and director of the Center for Adaptive Genetics and Drug Resistance. Thirty years ago, Dr. Levy began tracking these trends. Based on what he found, he's become a leading scientific voice calling for an end to the use of antibiotics as a preventive measure and growth stimulant in meat production. I have been involved in the research and the uh, issue, so to speak, for probably more than three decades. Uh, we did some of the earlier studies uh, in the mid-70s on uh, how the use of antibiotic-laced feed at low levels of antibiotics given to chickens changed the environment of the chickens where they were being raised in the sense that the chickens began to excrete bacteria resistant not only to that antibiotic, which was a tetracycline, but also many others that weren't introduced at the time. To our surprise, uh, the change from being susceptible bacteria to being resistant also occurred in members of the farm family. Some were working with the chickens, but 
uh, most were not, indicating that there was a total environmental change from carrying susceptible bacteria to carrying those that were resistant, not just to the antibiotic we were using, but to other antibiotics. We used the neighboring kids and families as a control for the area and the schools, and clearly the use of this antibiotic lace feed in the farm significantly changed the environment to one in which resistant bacteria were now being found fairly predominantly. Now, explain to us uh, how the use of antibiotics uh, in animals for other than therapeutic uses is breeding uh, the bacteria-resistant strains. How does that happen? That involves understanding the genetics of resistance in bacteria. It's almost science fiction-like. When I entered the field, it was really because as a young medical student, I was fascinated by the idea that bacteria could transfer resistance to virtually all the antibiotics known at that time from themselves or one cell to other bacteria who could then which could also transfer it to others in other words the resistance to antibiotics was not just held tightly by one bacterium or one population of bacteria these are movable genetic elements so we've discovered that resistance to tetracycline streptomycin chloramphenicol ampicillin could be transferred together in one block from one type of bacteria, let's say E. coli, to another, Salmonella. Now, the fact that you can transfer resistance means that virtually any bacterium out there can benefit by that transfer, both those that are not harmful to people and those that are. But you have this constant, and it's going on now, exchange of material, genetic material, among bacteria, whether it's on your skin, in your intestinal tract. But if you give or you take an antibiotic, your bacteria are either going to die or the numbers of them that have resistance will now propagate and be there, one, as a possible disease-causing agent that was in the minority but now suddenly becomes more prominent, or as a donor what we call a reservoir of antibiotic resistance genes because from that reservoir could be a harmful bacterium, could be a harmless bacterium. These genes or these genetic elements, these features of resistance can be transferred among bacteria of all different sorts. Those that grow in air, those that grow without air, those that are whose cell walls get stained and those whose cell walls don't get stained. I mean, the transfer event can occur between bacteria that are evolutionarily more distant than dogs and cats. So it's as if a dog or a cat could transfer something. But now you're talking about a bacterium, which is clearly very small, carrying a single chromosome, and it does a lot, but its major, major, major goal is to survive, and bacteria and microbes have survived tremendous events of destruction 
in this world so that, you know, they survived dinosaurs. They're here now. So we think that we're going to sterilize the world with our antibiotics. Forget it. It's a foolish thing to want to do. But more than that, what it does is change the environment in favor of resistant forms of the many bacteria that are out there. Dr. Levy's concerns are reinforced by microbiologist Lance Price, also known as the Meat Man. He directs the Center for Metagenomics and Human Health at the Translational Genomics Research Institute in Flagstaff, Arizona. But the problem for me as a microbiologist and really the public health issue here is not those traces of antibiotics in the meat, but the antibiotic resistant bacteria that you've selected for during this process of feeding them antibiotics up until that, you know, that 100, 100 days withdrawal period. So those don't disappear automatically when you remove the antibiotics. They continue. You've selected for this population to become dominant. And then there's the counter-selection. The selective force that would make them disappear is not there. And so they will go on and still remain contaminating the animal and, and contaminating the feces. And that's what we find, you know, when the, when the, the U.S. Nano, National Antibiotic Resistance Monitoring System monitors antibiotic resistant bacteria on, on meat and poultry, they find that, that a lot of the products are contaminated with antibiotic resistant bacteria. And f just for example, you know, 50% of the E. coli that's found on pork chops is resistant to tetracycline. That's just one number, and that's actually uh, the methods that NARMS uses are, are fairly conservative. Now, you're saying these bacteria are found on the surface of the meat when it's in, say, a supermarket? Exactly. So that's, that's really, that's the interface where a lot of us are exposed to this. So we, you know, when, when they, as I said, you know, you select for these antibiotic resistant bacteria to grow in the gastrointestinal tract in the guts of the animal. And then when you slaughter that animal, those, that, fecal material, that material from the gastrointestinal tract, contaminates the meat. It's a, you know, the the way these carcasses move through these semi-automated slaughter facilities, they move very fast and people are, are swinging knives as fast as they can and, and you know, it's it's not a perfect process and those, those products become contaminated with the spilled material from the gastrointestinal tract. So if we are studying the problem, we also need to look at the slaughterhouses? Oh, certainly, certainly. And, and that's, you know, that brings in a whole other aspect of, of worker safety and, and worker health, too. But just in terms of where the contamination really spreads, in other words, one would think that when you're going through a whole slaughter process, they're, they're using various kinds of sanitary hygienic uh, processes to clean the animal but are these not sufficient to rid it of these uh, drug resistant bacteria certainly not but i would i would say that that's where you should be controlling um, bacterial contamination of the meat is in the slaughter facility you don't try and contain it or or, or prevent those foodborne illnesses by treating the animals with antibiotics because all you're doing there is selecting for worse infections. You're selecting for antibiotic resistant bacteria then to contaminate the meat. Where you really need to control this is in the slaughter facility. And and you know, our country's since the uh you know the 
the infamous Jack in, Jack in a Box uh, E. coli poisonings um, more than a decade ago, uh, the the food animal industry has has really ramped up their efforts to prevent the meat products from becoming con- becoming contaminated. But it's still, you know, most chicken has, you know, almost all chicken has. Uh, bacteria on it and many of those are resistant to antibiotics uh, a good percentage of pork and beef products are also contaminated with bacteria a lot of those antibiotic resistant lance price of the translational genomics research institute in flagstaff arizona iowa has about i think they have about 16 million hogs and a population of between I think three to four million and hogs generally excrete about three to four times more waste than humans. Jay Graham, known to his colleagues as the Doo Dude, has made a career of studying the pathogens carried in animal and human waste. And the difference in the way we treat animal waste and human waste is that animal waste doesn't there are no regulations basically so i am concerned that we've you know heavily concentrated the industry they do produce a lot of waste um that waste contains a lot of the same organisms that make us sick uh so definitely i think we need to be concerned about how animal waste is being treated especially among those industrial uh feedlots is what i saw with this injection into the soil is that typical or is it more typical to spread it openly across fields and does that create special hazards you know my experience is that it's more typically just spread on top of fields um sort of the that's a more progressive activity going on but i think that that's probably come about just because of all the issues that they have there uh with animal waste you know between i think it was night between 1982 and 1997 we saw a 574% increase in um and swine raised in confinement so we've got these huge, you know, just a huge growth in that industry with very little regulation over how the waste is managed. So, um, yeah, I'm very concerned. <laughs> what is the uh, life cycle of these bacteria and how is it that the drug-resistant ones um, prevail? Basically, there was a practice that started... Um, around the 50s actually where they realized that feeding small levels of antibiotics or adding that to the feed would increase uh, growth rates basically the chickens would get to weight faster and you would require less feed to feed them so there was this economic incentive to sort of add this to the feed uh, over time though the benefits have sort of decreased and recently we actually looked at that what were the economic benefits of doing this and it was actually very it was negligible and in fact it <laughs> resulted in a loss but there's still a fear that when you're doing you have such crowded conditions that i think a lot of the farmers and producers want to continue feeding these antibiotics so they realized that this helped them sort of discourage disease outbreaks and they just started feeding animals consistently through their life cycle and um but 
of course, the consequences of that are the development. You don't kill all the bacteria. In fact, you sort of promote drug-resistant bacteria that can withstand, you know, um, exposure to those drugs. And then once those genetic determinants sort of evolve, uh, you, there's the potential to spread those through the, the food cycle and also into the environment. Jay Graham, Science and Technology Policy Fellow at the American Academy for the Advancement of Science. You're listening to A World of Possibilities, and I'm Mark Summer. Tonight we'll serve a supper, we'll eat some food that's rare, and at the head of the table, we'll place Brother Henry's chair. Invite all the local big dogs, we'll laugh and talk and eat, and we'll save the bones for Henry Jones, cause Henry don't eat no meat. Today I'll go to market, buy up a lot of fish, and that should thrill Brother Henry, cause fish is his special dish. Buy a can of molasses, so he'll have something sweet. And we'll save the bones for Henry Jones, cause Henry don't eat no meat. Now Henry's not a drinker, he rarely takes a nip. And he don't need a napkin, because the stuff he eats don't drip. One night we had a banquet, it really was a big. We started out with short ribs and finished up with steak. But when the feast was over, Brother Henry just kept his seat. And we served the... Dear KPFA listeners, may you be hale and hearty and know that you are mortal. For a graceful farewell for you and your loved ones, and to continue to support what you value, make plans now for your assets and remains. 10 a.m. to noon, Saturday, November 14th, at the Berkeley Fellowship of 